Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, lawmakers gave us an unprecedented end to an unprecedented session. We discussed the uncertainties. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, and Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports join the pundits to discuss the end of the legislative session and some constitutional uncertainty over how it ended. But first, let's get you caught up on the week. During the legislature's six-day recess, Governor Brad Little signed multiple pieces of legislation, including a controversial property tax bill. We'll have more on that with the pundits. But one bill that wasn't on government Governor Little's desk was a $6 million appropriation for an early childhood education grant. That appropriation has been sitting on the House's reading calendar for weeks after lawmakers killed the original bill over concerns about social justice curriculum. And as the House wrapped up its business on Wednesday, Minority Leader Ilana Rubel gave one last plea to bring that bill up for a vote. I feel that there has been such an ocean of misinformation on this, and I think you all know this. This was a grant given to us by the Trump administration at the request of Senators Risch and Crapo. Um, none of these figures, Trump, Risch, Crapo, none of them are advocates for socialist indoctrination or anything of the kind that I've seen. Um, these are all pretty solid, trusted, conservative voices in America, I think. Um, and I think the reason that they rallied behind this is because it's, it's a vital necessity to the families and children of Idaho. We are one of only four states that don't offer this currently. And to be clear, the people that are going to suffer are the poor kids. Wealthy families do this already. They are all paying for early childhood education, and their kids are reaping the benefits. And the benefits are very, very substantial. There are very measurable benefits in terms of meeting that third grade literacy target and uh, you know, increasing levels levels of high school graduation, lower levels of incarceration, improved lifelong performance. Um, and to throw this away for the poorest kids and the poorest families in our state is breaking my heart. And I, I hope that there is some chance to avert this because this money will be gone. Ultimately, that bill 1193 stayed on the reading calendar and never got that vote. On Thursday, reporters heard conflicting stories about a potential deal that senators say the House backed out on. On our second reading calendar, the, um, the budget in order to give the House office uh, funds so that they could expand into the Treasurer's office, the understanding was is there was a promise from the House to the Senate in the majority leadership that they would swap those. And then the House just said, we don't care about that. We're never going to send 1193 over to the Senate. There was no deal. There was no deal. So anybody who purports to have made a deal on 1193 is either misinformed or creating a deal that did not exist. 
At the House Majority Press Conference on Thursday, Assistant Majority Leader Jason Monks touted House Bill 389 targeted at property tax relief. Among other things, the law would increase the homeowner's exemption by $25,000. Governor Little signed that bill, but in his transmission letter expressed concerns about whether the legislation would do enough. Um, and obviously it takes a bicameral plus the governor uh, approach to be able to get anything done and I think this was about as far as we could push at this particular juncture as evidenced by the, the letter that you mentioned from the governor would he have gone much further um, and, and would the Senate have gone much further based on their vote you see it was about as close as we could get that was about as far as we could push uh, this year uh, the, but we've got a lot more work to do on that we will continue to work on that but you know keep in mind Property taxes is, is not a function of the state. That's a function of your local governments. Uh, that's where the property taxes increases come from. Uh, they don't come from the state. And so for us to have to intervene in that is, is um, unfortunate. At a Wednesday press conference before recess, conservative lawmakers discussed their accomplishments and frustrations. We have lower taxes, and I would argue that the tax cuts are a lot bigger than they would have been had we not been pushing for grocery tax repeal all throughout the session. They needed to raise the amount of the tax cut in order to squeeze out any opportunity for grocery tax repeal. That does not take it off the table, though. It will be a priority next session as well. We will keep pushing for grocery tax repeal because it's what Idahoans want. We have. Um, tried to protect Idahoans' rights to have their health and vaccination freedoms. We've tried to protect businesses from an overreaching um, executive branch, and um, I think we've accomplished a lot of that. You know, we have put forward hundreds of bills and proposals. Patriots across Idaho are waking up to the process more than they ever have in the history of Idaho. We've had people showing up to testify, drafting legislation, and I just want to thank all Idahoans for caring about our government. But what you have learned is that right now, government is broken. The legislative process is broken. We just did a tally. We had more than 185 pieces of legislation. Most of those are ideas, ideas from you, from Idahoans, that are not being allowed to go through the legislative process. That is a broken legislative process. Later that day, lawmakers wrapped up their business with the Senate adjourning for the session. The House, meanwhile, recessed, a move they say will allow them to call themselves back into session if the need arises. Speaker Scott Bedke addressed reporters about that move on Thursday. What we have done is we kept our foot in the door in case of the unforese unforeseen this summer. And so it maintains our checks and balance system. I don't anticipate that uh, our putting anything to, into effect unless there's another big chunk of federal money, and we're talking a large chunk. While Republicans were happy with the tax cuts this session, Democrats pointed to a lack of progress on other issues, particularly in education. This could have been the year we finally brought full day kindergarten to Idaho, something that's been a top task force recommendation for years and that would address lagging literacy performance and property tax problems. This could have been the year we finally raised Idaho above its dismal spot as last in the nation in education funding. Could have been the year we restored higher education funding, which never really recovered from the decade long recession cuts. Democrats also decried what they called a lack of civility between the House and the Senate, but House Majority leadership had a different view. 
the eight of us met uh, tw two times yesterday uh, for long periods of time, 30, 40 minutes when time was critical, just so that we could iron out uh, any, any differences, make sure that we had all the details covered. You know, it, it makes great news to, to point to friction between the House and the Senator, the legislative and the executive branch. That tension, let's call it creative tension, uh, at, at best it can be outright hostility at worst, and I think we were at the creative tension end of the spectrum rather than the hostility. You can watch all those press conferences in their entirety on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. Joining me to discuss Sine Die in Recess is Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun, and Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports. Ruth, there were wild differences in how lawmakers viewed this session, and, and that's not abnormal depending on who's on the winning side and who's on the losing side, but it was especially different this year. It was. Uh, I think there was a little bit of open hostility towards the end. Uh, in the press conference the day after the Senate signee died, uh, Senator Stennett mentioned that uh, she used the term there was no meaningful legislation that passed until the last week. Uh, whereas uh, the day after the House adjourned, uh, Speaker Bedke touted the property tax reduction bill, uh, the transportation funding bill. Uh, they talked a bit about um, restrictions to the governor's uh, power to the executive branch. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was a different year, and uh, I think they feel like they've come out of it with two very different perspectives. Clark, can you talk to me about the different views in civility with this session? Because it, from, from where I sat covering it, it did seem like that there was a lot of frustration between the two bodies, between the legislature and the executive branch. House uh, majority leadership said that it wasn't really that tense at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another example of the wildly different views uh, at this session that we all just watched transpire. This is a very recent thing. We all watched the same thing happen. But depending on what side of the political aisle on, you're on, you have very different views. I think it was in uh, the Democrat Senate press conference uh, where I want to say it was Senator Michelle Stennett talked about how when the senators went to give notice to the House that they were adjourning, uh, she said that um, House members who received them said go away, they didn't have time. Since then, Representative Macon Blanksma reached out to me and said she asked the senators to hold on. She was bringing a Senate resolution forward to wait a minute and then they left. Um, and so, yeah, it does seem like that there were hard feelings, not only between Republicans and Democrats, which is usual, but between the House and the Senate. I know Kevin's seen that uh, several times in recent years, but it seems like the tension between the House and the Senate whether or not everyone will admit it was perhaps greater this year than it has been in recent years and all we have to do is look at the different chambers disagreeing on how to wrap the longest session in state history up. Yeah, I mean no new tensions here. I mean it's House versus Senate, it's conservatives versus moderates within the Republican Party, it's the legislative branch versus the executive branch. We've seen this for years. It just, as Clark said, it felt more strained. It felt more strident than we've seen it in past sessions, and we saw it on Thursday. I mean, at about the same time that we were listening to House Republican leadership putting the best possible face on their relationship with Senate leadership, well, minutes later, Senate leadership had a, a post-session news release where Abby Lee said, well, you know, simply, we don't believe that the, the state 
Constitution calls for a perpetually meeting legislature or a, a full-time legislature. A, a pretty direct dig at House uh, leadership and at, and, a, and at the House's decision to recess. So I, I don't think that it's as, uh, I don't think the relationships are as, uh, you know, or as good as uh, House leadership made it sound. Yeah, House Republicans talked about how strong their relationship is with the governor, but they mentioned being close with staffers of the governor's office. They did not mention the governor. And if you look back to January, which seems like forever ago during this session, uh, Governor Brad Little had that press conference where he said that legislators were peddling disinformation about the coronavirus pandemic and about emergency orders uh, to realize political gains. And so uh, they tried to put a nice spin on it Thursday, but I think you don't have to look very deep beneath the surface uh, to see that it was a very divisive, very difficult session. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Clark, if the lawmakers and the governor don't get along or see things differently, does it really matter to the average Idaho citizen? I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, to the extent that they want a functioning government, yeah, sure. Uh, but some of these uh, inter-party squabbles, uh, inter-branch squabbles, are probably more interesting for people like us to talk about and analyze than just regular Idahoans. But I think it is particularly telling, especially when they talk about how the, they have to work together to accomplish these things and when our Constitution does provide for three co-equal branches of government. So I think it is important to a certain extent. And let's talk about this idea of a functioning government for a second. We're in uncharted territory as far as the Senate adjourning for the session, while the House, meanwhile, recessed, which means you know, functionally they can call themselves back at any time. We have never seen this before. At any time, and basically for any reason. You know, we've heard several different possible reasons. The, the most, you know, one being the ARPA funding. You know, House members wanting to have more of a command over how that big sum of federal stimulus money is spent. But as Clark noted in, in his story the other day, you, know, you have members of the House like, like Brent Crane talking about you know, meeting or coming back for any number of reasons that really seem fairly far afield from Idaho issues. Representative Crane told me the reason they could come back, there's national reasons, there's international reasons. He talked about unrest in the Middle East. He talked about the gas shortage uh, on the East Coast. Uh, and so I can't really see the role that the legislature in Idaho would play in addressing peace in the Middle East, but uh, perhaps. But it did... I mean, that was a little bit different than Scott Bedke standing up and saying, here, as we stand in the middle of May, I think it's going to be unlikely, whereas Representative Crane, in fairness, is not the Speaker of the House, but said there's all kinds of reasons that we could call ourselves back in session. We want to have this authority. And Representative Crane told me, quite frankly, a number of conservative House members didn't even want to adjourn the session in 2020, a year ago. And, and we've heard that repeatedly, for sure. You know, the, the Attorney General, the, the Deputy Attorney General issued a letter about whether the House recessing indefinitely would be problematic from, from a constitutional perspective. And and basically, Ruth, uh, Brian Kane said, we're not entirely sure. Right. They're not entirely sure about what it would mean if the House came back. Uh, there is some legal precedent to uh, look at the fact that one chamber cannot be in session without the other for more than three days. So in a hypothetical scenario, if the House called themselves back, um, all of the representatives, all 70 showed up, and uh, if they stayed for three days, the Senate may have to come back, even though the Senate already signee died. Um, I think it's also important to remember that they can't, they, the House, can't pass a bill alone. 
Um, they can't make a law alone. They need the Senate in order for it to be a functioning uh, government. So, like it or not. But, and here's one quirky little thing about this recess and this uncharted territory that we're in. This $6 million early education grant mm -hmm. bill, technically the House never really did anything with it. Technically, it is sitting on a third reading calendar that is a third reading calendar in perpetuity. If the House calls itself back in recess, technically that bill is still on the third reading calendar. It is still fair game. Now, that is, there's no guarantee that the House would bring it up. When, when you know, Scott Bedke talked about that bill during the press conference on Thursday, he was emphatic that the votes aren't there, made it clear that uh, in his view, the bill isn't going anywhere. But it's sitting there, <laughs> and we've never seen anything quite like this. You know, I, I want to talk to you a, a little bit about the state of education and how education leaders are looking at what has happened since the beginning of January. Uh, what happened with education this session? What state are public schools and higher ed going to be in this upcoming fiscal year? Well, I called it a session of stalemate, and it isn't just the stalemate that we're, we've seen between you know the House and the Senate, conservatives and moderates, uh, the legislature and the executive branch. I really think that in assessing what kind of session this was for education, I don't think there were any clear victors here. Governor Little got some things that he really wanted. He got another round of funding for the career ladder that basically covers two years of salary increases for teachers because they, they were you know, left out during the pandemic. He got some money for summer reading programs, for summer learning programs to try to address the, uh, the learning loss that we've seen during the pandemic. But he had to swallow a lot. You know, he had to you know, write off that $6 million early education grant that he really wanted. He had to absorb $2.5 million in higher education budget cuts you know, that were you know, targeted at some kind of social justice uh, expenditure on the campuses, but never really connected to a, a direct uh, series of costs, series of expenses on the campuses. And he had to sign House Bill 377, the anti-indoctrination bill turned law. And you know we saw his transmittal letter to the House where he listed a lot of concerns with the way that bill unfolded and the debate about that bill. And when I had a chance to talk to him this week uh, for my podcast, yeah, you know, it was very clear that he was very, you know, he found it very unsettling the way the debate went, and he was very, you know, unhappy with the insinuation that teachers were indoctrinating students. So in the middle of the pandemic, they had nothing better to do than to be indoctrinating students. Hardliners didn't get everything they wanted either. They did get this uh, social justice dialogue to become the prevailing theme on education. But a lot of bills that they wanted, they didn't get, whether we're talking about guns in schools or sex education or you know, a bill that would have really changed the teacher negotiation process, the uh, union negotiation process. Um, you know, a lot of legislation that conservatives wanted on education, they didn't get. And they didn't get it because the Senate uh, you know, killed most of these bills. It, it seemed like from where I was sitting, the, the House majority Republicans really had a successful session. They had a lot of big accomplishments, Ruth, including a big transportation package and two uh, huge tax cut bills. Indeed. Um, it was 398 that would have been a significant uh, property tax. Well, 
significant is a stretch, but it, it is. It depends on who's looking yeah, at it, it too, <laughs> right? Yeah, I stopped myself with that. Uh, it is a property tax uh, reduction, among other things. It will increase the homeowner's exemption by about $25,000. The governor did sign it, but he expressed in his transmittal letter significant concern um, around both how effective it would be regarding growth, but also the fact that it was uh, done sort of in the last week um, of a 122-day legislative session. They picked up this property tax bill in the last week, which uh, I think raises concerns about uh, transparency. The bill wasn't posted online for a long time. Um, the cities had concerns about it, about how it would affect uh, local government and property taxes. So while yes, they were, uh, they did see it, I believe, as an accomplishment, there were concerns from the governor. However, he did sign it. And that was, that was kind of a prevailing theme this session, Clark. We saw a lot of transmittal letters that could have been veto letters if you didn't know that he had otherwise signed the bill. Yeah, I think the Idaho Statesman editorial page had a little bit of fun with that. But yeah, there were a number, whether it was the emergency powers bills, uh, whether it was the property tax bill that Ruth just mentioned, uh, whether it was, I think, 377. Mm -hmm. On a number of those letters, if you deleted the word sign and wrote veto, it still would have made sense within context. And I think a lot of people pointed that out, and a lot of people wondered if the governor had all these concerns with this, with this legislation, in some cases indicating that it may go to courts on some of the bills, yeah. but he still signed them into law. And so I think that you know, maybe that reflects a little bit of the um, political maneuvering, uh, whether that involved getting the budgets to move forward. Uh, you know, I don't know for sure, but, uh, but yeah, it was pretty interesting. If you look at some of those letters, and all the concerns the governor listed, but then he signed them into law. So I think it is pretty interesting and interesting to pick up on that and talk about it. You know, as you spoke to Governor Little, did did you talk about those concerns? You know, he had so many concerns this session. Did he really have the political power to shift a lot of those conversations more than he did? I think on House Bill 377, the indoctrination bill, uh, I asked him about it in some detail. I wanted to talk to him about indoctrination on, a, on several levels. His concern, he said, was really more about the dialogue and the insinuation that indoctrination was widespread in the schools. He said, you know, as I look at the legislation, as I look at the language in the legislation, I don't have as much of a problem with that. And if it's preemptive, uh, if it's a response to what's being discussed in other states or what's happening on the national level, well, we do that in the state house from time to time. That's not unusual. But I think your point about his political strength on that issue in particular, I think is really interesting because the indoctrination debate is certainly not going away. May 27th, Janice McGeehan convenes her first meeting of her task force to look at indoctrination. No secret that Governor Little and Lieutenant Governor McGeehan are political adversaries. They may turn out to be political opponents before this thing all, uh, all winds out. I asked Governor Little about that task force, and he said, you know, if teachers and parents really have a say in this and really can, can participate, well, maybe we can learn something. And I asked him point blank, are you comfortable with this task force? And he said, we'll see. 
Where can people listen to your interview with Governor Little? The podcast uh, went live Friday morning. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud. You can get the link off of our, uh, our, our main page as well. IdahoEdNews.org? Yes. Fantastic. Clark, you did a story about how the extended legislative session was costing taxpayers a, a lot of money. How much are we talking about? I uh, filed a public records request with the state looking at the cost since they came back from that first recess on April 6th uh, through May 2nd. And what I looked at was the per diem that legislators are taking home, uh, their travel and vouchered expenses, as well as the cost for staffers helping out with the legislative session. We're talking almost $450,000 between April 6th and May 2nd. So we're talking you know, roughly $100,000 a week to have the legislature back in session. The last week and a half of the session, things were moving at a frenzied pace. But if you really think about it, when we came back April 6th, legislators immediately started killing budgets. The House was meeting for maybe a couple of hours a day on the floor. The Senate was working morning, afternoon, and in some cases, night. Uh, but those first couple weeks, especially after April 6th, were not productive at all, uh, did not move closer to adjournment, in fact, moved farther from adjournment. And the Idaho taxpayers are on the hook for uh, you know, almost $450,000 for expenses you know, since that first recess coming back on April 6th. You know, you, you say that these weren't necessarily productive days or weeks at the legislature, but we do know that lawmakers were working behind the scenes. Sure. You know, some, some of that work wasn't necessarily in public or maybe apparent, but, but they weren't all sitting in their cubicles in the basement. No, and I mean, not necessarily, but w w frankly, we don't know what any of them were doing, you know? Um, and they could have been working behind the scenes, in session, in recess, whatever. So, I, I mean, I don't know, but they were not taking up bills on the third reading calendar in the House is the point that I'm trying to make, and legislators were paying 100000 or and Idaho taxpayers, excuse me, were paying $100,000 a week for that. And we know that there were a lot of budgets and bills on that third reading calendar that were sitting for a long time, absolutely. Um, Ruth, shifting gears a little bit, we have about three minutes left. I wanted to ask you about the scheduled execution of uh, Gerald Pizzuto. Mm -hmm. um, can you remind us about this case and, and why it's so notable that the scheduled execution date is coming now? Yeah, it is notable to say the least. Uh, Jerry Pizzuto has been on death row for more than 35 years. Uh, he was convicted of two counts of first degree murder in Idaho County. Uh, he is, his attorneys have uh, filed a plea for, essentially a plea for mercy. They call it commutation. Uh, and that process goes through the Board of Pardons and Parole, and the Board of Pardons and Parole will make a recommendation to the governor, and the governor can um, grant that or not grant that. What makes Mr. Pizzuto's case uh, unique, I think, Mr. Pizzuto is uh, terminally ill. He has bladder cancer, he has heart conditions, he's wheelchair bound, he takes a lot of different med medication. I think in 2019, his physician estimated he only had about a year to live, and so he's outlived that, but he is a very ill man, and so it is unique that uh, the state is pursuing at this point execution. Uh, his attorneys are largely asking the state to just allow this man to uh, live out the rest of his natural life. They're not asking for release, they're asking for life without parole. Uh, and this isn't the first execution in Idaho that you've covered. In fact, you, you covered two, one in 2011, one in 2012. And e executions aren't a cheap thing for the state to carry out. No, not at all. Uh, in 2014, uh, OPE did a study on 
the cost of life excuse me life without parole versus the cost of uh, the death penalty and it is much much more expensive to execute people there are also a lot of questions around uh, lethal injection specifically uh, lethal injection is the only form of execution that Idaho does uh, so it is dramatically more expensive and, and, and speaking of lethal injection, there were issues with the last execution that Idaho carried out in which the state couldn't procure the drugs used to end somebody's life. Sure, and it does uh, get extremely complicated. The FDA does not uh, monitor, uh, I suppose it's medication, but medication that is used to end a human life. They don't monitor it because their role largely is to produce medications that help people uh, in one way or another. Also, um, it gets complicated with uh, obtaining those medications. You can't just get a prescription from a physician because physicians have taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. So to prescribe a medication that is going to knowingly end a human life is problematic. We'll continue to follow this story. Ruth Brown, Idaho Reports, Clark Corbin, Idaho Capital Sun, Kevin Richard, Idaho Education News, thanks for joining us and thank you for watching. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.